Welcome to Monticello Podcasts, where we look at various aspects of Monticello, Thomas Jefferson, and the work of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which has owned and operated Monticello since 1923. I'm Chad Wollerton, Monticello's webmaster. The recent controversy over release of U.S. diplomatic cables via WikiLeaks got us thinking about how Jefferson, the U.S.'s first Secretary of State under the Constitution, and his successors communicated with their ambassadors and consulates abroad. Luckily, we knew just who to turn to. Gene Bauer, creator of the Early American Foreign Service Database, a website that allows users to trace the early American government's attempts to deploy and control their overseas representatives, and that also provides access to biographical and professional information about all of America's Foreign Service officers from 1775 through the administration of John Quincy Adams. Earlier this month, we invited Ms. Bauer to our Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies to talk with Eric Johnson, Monticello's new media specialist, and give us a little background on the subject. Thank you, Gene, for coming in to talk to us today for about uh, diplomatic correspondence in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, this is, of course, in connection with the WikiLeaks uh, release this week, or this past week, that's uh, got everybody so worked up. Um, so we wanted to talk to somebody who could bring it down to sort of our era um, here at Monticello. So I appreciate it. I'm delighted to be here. So, All right, so start off with the big picture question, which is sort of what was the early sort of American Foreign Service like? Sort of what's, how was it set up, I guess, would be a good way to start <laughs> Well, uh, from a big picture perspective, it was a mess. <laughs> um, the my my period uh, goes from just before the Declaration of Independence through the tenure John Quincy Adams's tenure as Secretary of State, so 1775 to 1825. And the interesting thing about the early American Foreign Service is that it starts before the Declaration of Independence because they are trying to get. They're trying to see if anyone would support them if they become independent. The other interesting thing is that as a colony of the British Empire, the Americans never had any say in their own foreign policy until independence. Okay, sure. So there's no training. So you have a bunch of amateurs going out um, and kind of flailing around. Uh, what you mostly want in the early period are to, is to send people that you trust because the communication distance is so great. And you're looking at a six-month turnaround between a question asked and an answer received between Philadelphia and Paris. And that's assuming with the entire British Navy out to intercept your mail that the letters even get through. You see things in, in correspondence of, you know, this letter was sent in triplicate on three different ships. It never got there. Hmm. Wow. Um, so it's very much about personal, personal relationships, personal respect, personal trust, which then comes through back in the correspondence when the diplomats are giving their opinions. They're writing to people who know them because they wouldn't have been appointed if people didn't know them. So there's a very, I don't like to use the word multivalent, but there's oh, there there are many strands that connect the people who are in the foreign service to each other. Um, starting out because they're comrades in arms, a revolutionary vanguard, um, or avant-garde, and then um, and then later on, as they're trying to get the system up and running, it's just who do you know, who can you trust to send off, um, and you know. 
sort of yeah, make a minimum of mistakes. Okay, sure. You sort of trust them to represent our interests. You trust them, you trust them to represent them. So, and that, yeah. that works uh, on varying levels. <laughs> um, but it also depends. So, for example, when, uh, when Thomas Jefferson was Secretary of State um, during, and the French Revolution was kicking into high gear, and there, was, there were the September massacres and the terror, um, he was far more interested in listening to the opinions of friends of his, like Joel Barlow, or people he felt were his ideological compatriots like Thomas Paine, who were in Paris and in the National Assembly and were very in favor of what was going on in France, than listening to example for Governor Mor- to Governor Morris, hmm. who was the American minister plenipotentiary to the French government at the time. So Morris was the official diplomat, but he was a federalist. And so Jefferson was was disregarding Morris's apocalyptic descriptions of what's going on. Basically, the streets are running with blood, the world is ending, in favor of Joel Barlow or Thomas Paine saying freedom has come. So he's getting differing accounts, and he's trusting his friends, the people he knows personally who he agrees with, over his official diplomatic representative. Okay. Yeah, totally. I could dive in. That totally makes sense. <laughs> um, how, how did he, I mean, how basically did the, the network of correspondence work? How was the actual, you know, today we've got these diplomatic cables that right. work out quickly. Um, so yeah, a practical so matter, how, it, how were they doing worked it? In different, it did, worked in different ways at different times, which is not going to be my entire answer. Um, <laughs> yeah. So early on, um, and still for a lot of diplomatic correspondence, usually what happened was you hired someone to take the correspondence physically back with them. Um, in the 1780s, uh, when Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were jointly in control of diplomatic representation to Europe, Adams was in London. He was also the minister plenipotentiary to The Hague, but he was based in London at the time. And Jefferson was in Paris. Whenever they had something really important to deliver back, they would hire someone and put him on a ship. And Adams would actually take out a life insurance policy for him in London um, in case the ship went down as part of the deal. And Adams did that in London because the insurance market in London was far more sophisticated. He could get a much better rate. Um, so that was one way that you Very did it. Very practical. <laughs> yes. If you were, if you were a consul, um, and, uh, then you usually just sent it back on whatever ship was going wherever they went. Um, if, you, if it was correspondence between foreign service officers who were posted abroad, which was most of the correspondence, a, a very small percentage of the letters that were sent within the foreign service actually went from the, from the capital, whether that was New York or Philadelphia um, or Washington, D.C., out to the diplomats and consuls or vice versa. Um, the U.S. government, the various American governments did not have a lot of time. They did not have a lot of money. And for the most part, they just sent these people out and kind of left them there. Hmm. Um, so what a lot of my work d- is based on for my dissertation is trying to reconstruct the networks that the Foreign Service officers used to get information for themselves and then to circulate it amongst themselves. So they would, they would write to their friends and their business associates and their old classmates and their family, and then they would sort of pool this information and write to each other to fill in their gaps. So there was actually the, the home government was a separate piece. The diplomats, of which there were usually only five embassies at any point in up until the 1820s when 
with the breakup of the Spanish uh, Empire and the New World, they added five more. But it was just in a couple major capitals. The consuls were everywhere. Um, so the diplomats got the most attention from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and then the State Department. Um, and then the, or the Committee on Foreign Affairs in, in the Continental Congress and the State Department. Um, but the consuls were most of it. So there is a, a very sort of decentralized, um, dare I say, social network <laughs> involved in all of this that you don't see anymore. Um, that with the advent of the telegraph, you could really keep tabs on people. And obviously the government moved to do that. That's more true for the Americans than it would be for a more developed foreign service, like the French Foreign Service. At the time, um, the amount of control that the French foreign minister, for example, the Comte de Vergen, was able to exert over his minister plenipotentiary in Philadelphia during the American Revolution is far higher than any kind of control the Continental Congress was able to exert over their commissioners or ministers in Paris. So part of it, it's not just the distance, it's also the organizational will and the training that French Foreign Service officers had that American Foreign Service officers didn't. Um, so there's a, it's not just that it takes the ship a while to get there, there's also a will and a staff and money to control these people and keep them in line, right. which the Americans um, didn't have. When, you know, you talk about the, the sort of exchange of, um, I guess, the exchange of letters among the consular officers, yeah. What like what kinds of observations are they making? What are they usually talking about when they're sort of comparing notes, or okay. however you want to look at that? Well, um, all the consuls, with the exception of the Barbary states in North Africa, um, being a consul was not considered a full time position. In fact, you weren't paid oh. at all. Okay. America did not pay its consuls until the 1850s. Um, they could charge fees for consular services, like being a public notary or getting your ship out of. Uh, out of the Admiralty Court <laughs> or whatever. Um, but they were all full-time merchants. So a lot of their correspondence was actually an attempt to get each other rich. Um, so there's a lot of price comparisons. There are a lot of business deals. But then they'll also do things like, um, there's a, this involves a consul, but the question or originates with John Quincy Adams um, when he was the minister plenipotentiary to The Hague. And this woman comes into his office and says that she's, a, she's from Boston, her husband died, she needs to get home. Something about her story raises a red flag for Adams, and he doesn't quite trust her just to give her money and, and let her go home. So he writes to um, Monroe, he, in, he writes, writes to people in Paris, he writes to uh, Sylvanus Bourne, who's the consul in Amsterdam, sort of sending out her story and basically running a background check on her to say, she says she's been here, have you heard of her? Do you know... Is this is she who she says she is? Because I'm not sure. Um, so there's a lot of sort of moment-to-moment -moment stuff like that. Then there are also circular letters that go out with the with things like the Corsair fleet is out in the Mediterranean. Algier has chopped down our flagpole. We're at war. Get all the ships back in now. Um, so it, it varies. It's everything from the day-to-day -to, -day to to issues of war to commerce to back and forth. Did they deal, I mean, in terms of, of course, now with the whole WikiLeaks, you know, thing, of course, security is, of course, a major issue. You know, when you talked about sending out multiple copies, mm -hmm. this kind of course, I mean, were they worried particularly about, I mean, were they worried about security? And then 
did they do anything in terms of, you know, encoding, or was it just strictly, you know, honorable? Kind of a lot of it. A lot of it was in the clear. Um, they did have codes. Um, uh, Lovell, who was a, a member of the Continental Congress from uh, from Massachusetts, was is sort of the father of American cryptography something and uh, they usually used uh, what were called substitution ciphers which is a basically oh you have a sheet that is a list of numbers and what they correspond to uh, depending on the paranoia of your individual diplomat um, you can either have just certain words that are sort of blanked out with a code that's usually what John Adams and Thomas Jefferson did they would sort of write but then if there was something like you know and I was talking to then all of a sudden you'd have three five seven um, and then they'd also lose parts of their cipher sheets and ask them for copies back and forth. Um, other diplomats, uh, John Armstrong, who was the American minister minister in under the uh, Jefferson administration, wrote back almost exclusively in cipher using these substitution Must sheets. Have been fun. Yes, um, sometime in the mid twentieth century, they lost. Armstrong cipher sheets. They lost the decoding pages. Um, the James Madison papers have been painstakingly reconstructing the cipher sheets to read his mail. Um, and when I worked for the James Madison papers, I actually was given a letter to crack. Um, this the the cipher sheet that had been reassembled gave me about a third of the letter. Um, but the trick is, is that actually their cipher sheets they went alphabetically. So within a week, I was able to crack the rest of the letter. And I'd never done this before. At the time, the British Secret Service was, among, was the most advanced in the world. Um, and so if I could do it in a week, the British could do it in their sleep. The, the idea, they were concerned about security, but the idea that any of their information was in fact secure is the biggest joke on the planet. This was, it was, frankly, it was probably more a way of making themselves feel important. A little bit like, you know, writing in Pig Latin when you're eight, um, because a bad code only generates the illusion of security rather than actually being real. Um, also, most governments at the time had something like a black cabinet where all outgoing mail was simply copied. Right. So, <laughs> funny. <laughs> um, so they're, they're, you know, so and, and a cipher sheet like that. Especially when they're sending it back and forth to each other, because hey, I don't remember what three seven nine is anymore. Would you send it back to me? Um, yeah, remind me again. Remind me again. Yeah, no, I mean it, they weren't using, to the best of my knowledge, they weren't using book codes or anything more, uh, more sophisticated. Exactly. They that really would have been harder to break. Okay, sure, and not not really much of an expectation, I guess. Of um, I don't know what they had the expectation. I, I don't know how much security they really expected. Um, I think Armstrong really thought his letters were probably secure. He was wrong on a number of other counts, however, so I'm not sure that he's the best. He's the best example. Um, there was the, the math and the know-how was available for far more sophisticated cryptography than the United States was in fact using hmm. at the time. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> so would do you think, that's going to be one of those great questions, that would Jefferson, you think, have much recognition for the diplomatic corps these days of the Foreign Service? I mean, like, as it's set up, as it's run now versus mm -hmm. when he was doing it? I probably would have really liked it. Yeah. I mean, having something that decentralized, that disorganized, causes a huge number of headaches. Um, in Jefferson's day, when he was Secretary of State, 
Um, the State Department did a lot more than run the Foreign Service. They also had the census and a number of other internal affairs issues. Um, they were literally the Department of State, the whole state, externally and internally. Um, they didn't become a, f a completely Foreign Service-oriented department until 1848 in the creation of the Department of the Interior. Um, so I think he would have really liked the chance to have a staff and have have control um, because it's it's very nerve wracking to not have that. I mean, just because that's the way you have to run things, and it's more romantic if the diplomat is sort of out on their own. It's it you bite a lot of fingernails at home wondering what's going on, and the diplomat, if they're intelligent at all, which quite a few of them were, not all of them, but quite a few of them, um, it's very nerve wracking to be cut off from your home government too. So there's a lot there are a lot of things that people want to do but don't have the authority to do. Think it would be a good idea to do right now and if they're scrupulous they say, "Well, my instructions don't allow me to do that. Can you wait 6 months while I find out if I can get more information?" During the French Revolution, 6 months is something like 50 to 100 years in the natural political development of a, a normal state. So six months later, you could be on your next republic. And it's not, uh, it's not a good way to do things, and they knew that. And they were trying to sort of hedge their bets. But I, I think that um, there are a lot of things about the federal government that I'm sure Jefferson would be appalled about. I think a, a better control over diplomats, as someone who was a diplomat himself and left kind of out to dry. Um, when he desperately needed information, he would appreciate this closer contact. Also, he wouldn't have been able to break the law of nations quite nearly so often um, if he'd been under closer contact. But, In um, what way? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, diplomats are represent their host, their home government to their host government. Um, they have no business doing things like helping to draft the rights of man and citizen when they are, in fact, the representative of the United States of America to the French monarchy. Details, details. <laughs> Jefferson isn't the only one. All, all, almost all of, the, all of the diplomats sent to France during the Revolution picked a side in one way or another, but it was not what they were supposed to be doing. They all did it for their own reasons. Some of them picked the monarchy, some of them picked the Revolution, but there's something about the French Revolution no one was ever able to... You had to pick a side. <laughs> so, on the other end, the sort of the Grand Rapid question, mm -hmm. is there other stuff in terms of what you know about WikiLeaks? Obviously, none mm -hmm. of us knows everything about it yet. Mm -hmm. um, still trying to absorb it all. But are there other kinds of parallels or comparison or contrast kinds of stuff that cross your mind mm -hmm. when... Yeah, I, I, took, I took a look at some of the stuff that's been posted on the New York Times uh, the other night since I knew I was going to be talking to you. I actually didn't intentionally didn't look at it before because I felt like I, it shouldn't be out there, that it was dangerous to have this stuff out there, and I didn't want to be um, encouraging the people who had put it out there by giving them my attention. However, I have to say that the stuff that I read looked very familiar. Um, it was, I didn't read all of it, I read a couple things, but for the most part it was summaries of conversations and meetings with a very sort of detailed, very detailed, very impressive um, assessment of, not a, 
not the assessment at the beginning, but a very detailed account of what happened. Um, it read, they read very nicely. Um, and then at the end, there was a sort of sum up opinion section. Um, so I was actually, I was extremely impressed with the quality of the reports that were coming back, despite the fact that I really shouldn't have been reading them. Um, so that made me feel really quite good. Um, I think the Foreign Service is, has, should represent the best of the United States. And I think that the stuff I read was was very good. So it, in a lot of ways, it read like a regular diplomatic dispatch from the 18th century. You know, here's what I did, here's what happened, and most importantly, and this is, I think, the thing that people are having trouble with with WikiLeaks, is here's what I think about what happened. Diplomats give information, and that's very helpful, that they, they can report on conversations and do things like that. We also have something that they didn't have in the 18th century, which is signal intelligence. We, we have satellites, we intercept communications, we do all sorts of things that have nothing to do with having a human being in a room with another human being. Human intelligence is not nearly as important to the federal government as it used to be, because signal intelligence since the Cold War has grossly um, has just blown human intelligence out of the water. Um, so this is not the most important source of information for the federal government. People don't realize that, in fact, what the DOD can see or what the CIA can crack is way more important than anything that the, that the Foreign Service is sending back, with one crucial exception, which is that diplomacy is still, in a lot of ways, a face-to-face -face thing. There's a reason why President Obama gets on a plane or Secretary Clinton picks up the phone. Um, that's something that doesn't happen in my period just because you can't send the president on a six-month round trip where he may go down in the ocean halfway through. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, even if sometimes there are people who might have wanted that to happen, you'd still, <laughs> you still don't do it. The opinions, it's not just what they say, it's how they say. Do I, do I believe what you're telling me? So I read a very good report on... A, a local leader in Afghanistan. And at the end of it, it was, you know what? This is what he said. I don't believe him. And that is the crucial thing. And people don't understand. I think a lot of the reaction to WikiLeaks is reactions to the opinions. But the opinions are the crucial thing. And what I'm scared is going to happen is that if people get attacked for the opinions that they write in internal documents, we're going to lose that one sort of it's not the last thing that human intelligence can provide to the government, but it's, it's crucial. And, um, you know, there's a, a point in, very early in the American Revolution when the Americans take uh, Fort Ticonderoga, which we don't really think of as being all that big um, when we study American history, because there were like, there was a, the, the fort was almost empty by the time they got there. It was great that Henry Knox got the cannons across the lake to relieve the siege of Boston, but actually taking the fort, we're more interested in the cannons. When that news gets back to Europe, Fort Ticonderoga was a major, major French installation, and they held it during the Seven Years' War against a huge besieging army by the British. When news gets back to Europe that the Americans have taken Fort Ticonderoga. People think of it as like Fort Knox, like this thing you can't get into. And the French ambassador to London at the time has a conversation, Guine, 
has a conversation with uh, Lord Suffolk, and Lord Suffolk has to admit that the fort has been taken and all the ammunition is gone. And he write, Gein writes back to Vergen and says, I never saw a man in my life more embarrassed. And that is when Vergen starts to think that these crazy colonials who don't want to pay their taxes might actually be worth taking a look at because they embarrassed. They didn't just take the fort, they embarrassed Lord Suffolk and Lord Suffolk knows he's embarrassed and he has to admit it anyway. And that is in many ways, that is what gets the French interested. It's not Saratoga. By Saratoga, they're, they're engaged already. They've been, sent, they've been shipping money, and guns, and, and weapons for over a year by the time Saratoga comes along. But it's that he was embarrassed. That's the important part. And that's the stuff that you're seeing in WikiLeaks, and that's the things that make people nervous. But that's the part that matters. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, that's great. So, well, that concludes my questions. <laughs> so, thank you so much for well, thank you for having me. Yeah, this is great. Really appreciate it. <laughs> my favorite thing to talk about. So, great. <laughs> well, we'll have to do it again. All right. Yeah.